Chapter Ten, Part Four, of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. How I Found Livingston, Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 10, Part 4, To Mrera Yukonongo. While on this subject, I may as well give here a sketch of each of the principal men whose names must often appear in the following chapters. According to rank, they consist of Bombay, Mabruki Burton, Asmani the Guide, Chowpura, Ulamengo, Kamizi, Ambari, Juma, Fajari the Cook, Maganga the Manyamwezi, Salim the Arab Boy, and youthful Kalulu, a gun-bearer. Bombay has received an excellent character from Burton and Speke. Incarnation of honesty, Burton, grandly terms him. The truth is, Bombay was neither very honest nor very dishonest, i.e., he did not venture to steal much. He sometimes contrived cunningly, as he distributed the meat, to hide a very large share for his own use. This peccadillo of his did not disturb me much. He deserved as captain a larger share than the others. He required to be closely watched, and when aware that this was the case, he seldom ventured to appropriate more cloth than I would have freely given him, had he asked for it. As a personal servant or valet, he would have been unexceptional, but as a captain or jamander over his fellows, he was out of his proper sphere. It was too much brain work, and was too productive of anxiety to keep him in order. At times he was helplessly imbecile in his movements, forgot every order the moment it was given him, consistently broke or lost some valuable article, was fond of argument, and addicted to bluster. He thinks Haji Abdullah one of the wickedest white men born, because he saw him pick up men's skulls and put them in sacks, as if he was about to prepare a horrible medicine with them. He wanted to know whether his former master had written down all he himself did, and when told that Burton had not said anything in his books upon the lake regions upon collecting skulls at Kilwa, thought I would be doing a good work if I published this important fact. Bombay intends to make a pilgrimage to visit Speke's grave some day. I find upon returning to England that Captain Burton has informed the world of this wicked and abominable deed in his book upon Zanzibar, and that interesting collection may be seen at the Royal College of Surgeons, London. Mabruki, Ras Burka Mabruki, Bullheaded Mabruki, as Burton calls him, is a sadly abused man in my opinion. Mabruki, though stupid, is faithful. He is entirely out of his element as a valet. He might as well be clerk. As a watchman he is invaluable, 
as a second captain or funde, whose duty it is to bring up stragglers, he is super-excellent. He is ugly and vain, but he is no coward. Osmani the guide is a large fellow, standing over six feet, with the neck and shoulders of Hercules. Besides being guide, he is a fundi, sometimes called fundi asmani, or hunter. A very superstitious man, who takes great care of his gun, and talisman-plated cord, which he has dipped in the blood of all the animals he has ever shot. He is afraid of lions, and will never venture out where lions are known to be. All other animals he regards as game, and he is indefatigable in their pursuit. He is seldom seen without an apologetic or treacherous smile on his face. He could draw a knife across a man's throat and still smile. Chowprera is a sturdy short man of thirty or thereabouts, very good-natured and humorous. When Chowprera speaks in his dry Mark Twain style, the whole camp laughs. I never quarrel with Chowprera, never did quarrel with him. A kind word given to Chowprera is sure to be reciprocated with a good deed. He is the strongest, the healthiest, the amiablest, the faithfulest of all. He is the embodiment of a good follower. Kamizi is a neat, cleanly boy of twenty or thereabouts, active, loud-voiced, a boaster, and the cowardliest of the cowardly. He will still at every opportunity. He clings to his gun most affectionately, is always excessively anxious if a screw gets loose or if a flint will not strike fire. Yet I doubt that he would be able to fire his gun at an enemy from excessive trembling. Kamizi would rather trust his safety to his feet, which are small and well-shaped. Ambari is a man of about forty. He is one of the faithfuls of speak, and one of my faithfuls. He would not run away from me except when in the presence of an enemy, and imminent personal danger. He is clever in his way, but is not sufficiently clever to enact the part of captain. Could take charge of a small party, and give a very good account of them. Is lazy, and an admirer of good living, abhors marching, unless he has nothing to carry but his gun. Juma is the best abused man of the party because he has old womanish ways with him. Yet in his old womanish ways he is disposed to do the best he can for me, though he will not carry a pound in weight without groaning terribly at his hard fate. To me he is sentimental and pathetic. To the unimportant members of the caravan he is stern and uncompromising. But the truth is that I could well dispense with Juma's presence. He was one of the incorrigible inulities, eating far more than he was worth, besides being an excessively grumbling and querulous fool. Ulamango, a strong, stalwart fellow of thirty, was the maddest and most hare-brained of my party. Though an errant coward, he was a consummate boaster. But though a devotee of pleasure and fun, he was not averse from work. With one hundred men such as he, I could travel through Africa, provided there was no fighting to do. It will be remembered that he was the Marshal 
Corypheus, who led my little army to war against Marambu, chanting the battle-song of the Wangwana, and that I stated that when the retreat was determined upon, he was the first of my party to reach the stronghold of Mafutu. He is a swift runner and a fair hunter. I have been indebted to him on several occasions for a welcome addition to my larder. Faraji, a former dishwasher to speak, was my cook. He was promoted to this office upon the defection of Bundar Salam and the extreme non-fitness of Abdul Kader. For cleaning dishes, the first corn-cob, green twig, a bunch of green leaves, or grass, answered Faraji's purpose in the absence of a cloth. If I ordered a plate, and I pointed out a black, greasy, sooty thumb-mark to him, a rub of a finger Faraji thought sufficient to remove all objections. If I hinted that a spoon was rather dirty, Faraji fancied that with a little saliva and a rub of his loincloth, the most fastidious ought to be satisfied. Every pound of meat and every three spoonfuls of mush or porridge I ate in Africa contained at least ten grains of sand. Faraji was considerably exercised at a threat I made to him that on arrival at Zanzibar I would get the great English doctor there to open my stomach and count every grain of sand found in it, for each grain of which Faraji should be charged one dollar. The consciousness that my stomach must contain a large number, for which the forfeits would be heavy, made him feel very sad at times. Otherwise Faraji was a good cook, most industrious, if not accomplished. He could produce a cup of tea and three or four hot pancakes within ten minutes after a halt was ordered, for which I was most grateful, as I was almost always hungry after a long march. Faraji sided with Baraka against Bombay in Unyoro, and when Speke took Bombay's side of the question, Faraji, out of love for Baraka, left Speke's service and so forfeited his pay. Maganga was a Manyamwezi, a native of Makwenkwe, a strong, faithful servant, an excellent pagazi with an irreproachable temper. He it was who at all times, on the march, started the wildly exuberant song of the Wanyamwezi porters, which, no matter how hot the sun or how long the march, was sure to produce gaiety and animation among the people. At such times all hands sang, sang with voices that could be heard miles away, which made the great forests ring with the sounds, which startled every animal, big or little, for miles around. On approaching a village the temper of whose people might be hostile to us, Maganga would commence his song, with the entire party joining in the chorus, by which mode we knew whether the natives were disposed to be friendly or hostile. If hostile or timid, the gates would at once be closed, and dark faces would scowl at us from the interior. If friendly, they rushed outside of their gates to welcome us, or to exchange friendly remarks. An important member of the expedition was Selim, the young Arab, 
Without someone who spoke good Arabic, I could not have obtained the friendship of the chief Arabs in Unyanyembe. Neither could I have communicated with them, for though I understood Arabic, I could not speak it. I have already related how Kalulu came to be in my service, and how he came to bear his present name. I soon found how apt and quick he was to learn, in consequence of which he was promoted to the rank of personal attendant. Even Selim could not vie with Kalulu in promptness and celerity, or in guessing my wants at the table. His little black eyes were constantly roving over the dishes, studying out the problem of what was further necessary, or had become unnecessary. We arrived at the Zawani in about four hours, thirty minutes, from the time of our quitting the scene which had well-nigh witnessed a sanguinary conflict. The Zawani, or pool, contained no water, not a drop, until the parched tongues of my people warned them that they must proceed and excavate for water. This excavation was performed by means of strong hard sticks sharply pointed in the dry hard-caked bottom. After digging to a depth of six feet, their labors were rewarded with the sight of a few drops of muddy liquid percolating through the sides, which were eagerly swallowed to relieve their raging thirst. Some voluntarily started with buckets, gourds, and canteens south to a deserted clearing called the Tongoni, in Ukemba, and in about three hours returned with a plentiful supply for immediate use of good, clear water. In one hour, thirty minutes, we arrived at this Tongoni, or deserted clearing of the Wakemba. Here were three or four villages burnt, and an extensive clearing desolate, the work of the Wa-Ruga-Ruga of Marumbu. Those of the inhabitants who were left, after the spoliation and complete destruction of the flourishing settlement, emigrated westerly to Yugara. A large herd of buffalo now slaked their thirst at the pool which supplied the villages of Yukemba with water. Great masses of iron hematite cropped up above the surfaces in these forests. Wild fruit began to be abundant. The wood apple and tamarind and a small plum-like fruit furnished us with many an agreeable repast. The honeybird is very frequent in these forests of Yukonongo. Its cry is a loud, quick chirrup. The Wakanongo understand how to avail themselves of its guidance to the sweet treasure of honey, which the wild bees have stored in the cleft of some great trees. Daily, the Wakanongo who joined our caravan brought me immense cakes of honeycomb containing delicious white and red honey. The red honeycomb generally contains large numbers of dead bees, but our exceedingly gluttonous people thought little of these. They not only ate the honey-bees, but they ate a good deal of the wax. As soon as the honey-bird descries the traveler, he immediately utters a series of wild, excited cries, hops about from twig to twig and from branch to branch, then hops to another tree, incessantly repeating his chirruping call. The native, understanding the nature of the little bird, unhesitatingly follows him, but perhaps his steps are too slow for the impatient caller, upon which he flies back, 
urging him with louder, more impatient cries to hasten, and then darts swiftly forward, as if he would show how quickly he could go to the honey store, until at last the treasure is reached. The native has applied fire to the bee's nest and secured the honey, while the little bird preens himself and chirrups in triumphant notes, as if he were informing the biped that without his aid he never could have found the honey. Buffalo gnats and tsetse were very troublesome on this march, owing to the numerous herds of game in the vicinity. On the ninth of October we made a long march in a southerly direction, and formed our camp in the center of a splendid grove of trees. The water was very scarce on the road. The Wamrima and the Wanyamwezi are not long able to withstand thirst. When water is plentiful, they slake their thirst at every stream and pool. When it is scarce, as it is here and in the deserts of Maranga and Magunda Makila, long afternoon marches are made, the men previously, however, filling their gourds so as to enable them to reach the water early next morning. Selim was never able to endure thirst. It mattered not how much of the precious liquid he carried. He generally drank it all before reaching camp, and he consequently suffered during the night. Besides this, he endangered his life by quaffing from every muddy pool, and on this day he began to complain that he discharged blood, which I took to be an incipient stage of dysentery. During these marches, ever since quitting Uganda, a favorite topic at the campfires were the Wa-Ruga-Ruga and their atrocities, and a possible encounter that we might have with these bold rovers of the forest. I verily believe that a sudden onset of half a dozen of Marambu's people would have set the whole caravan a-running. We reached Marufu the next day, after a short three hours' march. We there found an embassy sent by the Arabs of Unyanyembe to the southern Watutu, bearing presents of several bells, in charge of Hassan the Masaguha. This valiant leader and diplomatist had halted here some ten days because of wars and rumors of wars in his front. It was said that Mabogo, Sultan of Mabogo in Yukonongo, was at war with the brother of Manwa Sera, and as Mabogo was a large district of Yukonongo, only two days' march from Marifu, fear of being involved in it was deterring old Hassan from proceeding. He advised me also not to proceed, as it was impossible to be able to do so without being embroiled in the conflict. I informed him that I intended to proceed on my way, and take my chances, and graciously offered him my escort as far as the frontier of Ufipa, from which he could easily and safely continue on his way to the Watutu, but he declined it. We had now been traveling fourteen days in a southwesterly direction, having made a little more than one degree of latitude. I had intended to have gone a little further south, because it was such a good road, also since by going further south we should have labored under no fear of meeting Marambu. But the report of this war in our front, only two days off, compelled me, in the interest of the expedition, to strike across towards the Tanganyika, in a west-by-north course through the forest, traveling, when it was advantageous, along elephant tracks and local paths. This new plan was adopted after consulting with Asmani the guide. 
We were now in Ukonongo, having entered this district when we crossed the Gombe Creek. The next day after arriving at Marifu, we plunged westward, in view of the villagers and the Arab ambassador, who kept repeating until the last moment that we should certainly catch it. We marched eight hours through a forest where the forest peach, or the mbembu, is abundant. The tree that bears this fruit is very like a pear tree, and is very productive. I saw one tree upon which I estimated there were at least six or seven bushels. I ate numbers of the peaches on this day. So long as this fruit can be produced, a traveler in these regions need not fear starvation. At the base of a graceful hilly cone we found a village called Utende, the inhabitants of which were in a state of great alarm as we suddenly appeared on the ridge above them. Diplomacy urged me to send forward a present of one doti to the sultan, who, however, would not accept it, because he happened to be drunk with pombe, and was therefore disposed to be insolent. Upon being informed that he would refuse any present unless he received four more cloths, I immediately ordered a strong boma to be constructed on the summits of a little hill, near enough to a plentiful supply of water, and quietly again packed up the present in a bale. I occupied a strategically chosen position, as I could have swept the face of the hill, and the entire space between its base and the village of the Watendi. Watchmen were kept on the lookout all night, but we were fortunately not troubled until the morning, when a delegation of the principal men came to ask if I intended to depart without having made a present to the chief. I replied to them that I did not intend passing through any country without making friends with the chief, and if their chief would accept a good cloth from me, I would freely give it to him. Though they demurred at the amount of the present at first, the difference between us finally ended by my adding a fundo of red beads, sami-sami, for the chief's wife. From the hill and ridge of Utende sloped a forest for miles and miles westerly, which was terminated by a grand and smooth-topped ridge, rising five hundred or six hundred feet above the plain. A four-hours' march on the 12th of October brought us to a nola similar to the Gombe, which, during the wet season, flows to the Gombe River, and thence to the Malagarazi River. A little before camping we saw a herd of Nimba, or Pala. I had the good fortune to shoot one, which was a welcome addition to our fast-diminishing store of dried meats, prepared in our camp on the Gombe. By the quantity of bois de vache, we judged buffaloes were plentiful here, as well as elephant and rhinoceros. The feathered species were well represented by the ibis, fish eagles, pelicans, storks, cranes, several snowy spoonbills, and flamingos. From the Nola, or Matoni, we proceeded to Mwaru, the principal village of the district of Mwaru, the chief of which is Ka Marambu. Our march lay over desolated clearings once occupied by Ka Marambu's people but who were driven away by Mukazawa some ten years ago, during his warfare against Manwar Sera. Nongo, the brother of the latter, now waging war against Mabogo, had passed through Mwaru the day before we arrived, 
after being defeated by his enemy. The hilly ridge that bounded the westward horizon, visible from Utende, was surmounted on this day. The western slope trends southwest and is drained by the river Mrera, which empties into the Malagarazi River. We perceived the influence of the Tanganyika even here, though we were yet twelve or fifteen marches from the lake. The jungles increased in density, and the grasses became enormously tall. These points reminded us of the maritime districts of Yukaware and Yukami. We heard from a caravan at this place, just come from Ufipa, that a white man was reported to be an Urua, whom I supposed to mean Livingston. Upon leaving Mawaru, we entered the district of Mrera, a chief who once possessed great power and influence over this region. Wars, however, have limited his possessions to three or four villages, snugly embosomed within a jungle, whose outer rim is so dense that it serves like a stone wall to repel invaders. There were nine bleached skulls stuck on top of as many poles before the principal gate of entrance, which told us of existing feuds between the Wakanongo and the Wazavira. This latter tribe dwelt in the country a few marches west of us, whose territory we should have to avoid unless we sought another opportunity to distinguish ourselves in battle with the natives. The Wazavira, we were told by the Wakanongo of Mrera, were enemies to all Wangwana. In a narrow strip of marsh between Mwaru and Mrera, we saw a small herd of wild elephants. It was the first time I had ever seen these animals in their native wildness, and my first impressions of them I shall not readily forget. I am induced to think that the elephant deserves the title of King of Beasts. His huge form, the lordly way in which he stares at an intruder on his domain, and his whole appearance indicative of conscious might, afford good grounds for his claim to that title. This herd, as we passed it at the distance of a mile, stopped to survey the caravan as it passed, and, after having satisfied their curiosity, the elephants trooped into the forest which bounded the marshy plain southward, as if caravans were everyday things to them, whilst they, the free and unconquerable lords of the forest and the marsh, had nothing in common with the cowardly bipeds, who never found courage to face them in fair combat. The destruction which a herd makes in a forest is simply tremendous. When the trees are young, whole swaths may be found uprooted and prostrate, which mark the track of the elephants as they trampled their path through wood and brake. The boy Salim was so ill at this place that I was compelled to halt the caravan for him for two days. He seemed to be affected with a disease in the limbs which caused him to sprawl and tremble most painfully, besides suffering from an attack of acute dysentery. But constant attendance and care soon brought him around again, and the third day he was able to endure the fatigue of riding. I was able to shoot several animals during our stay at Marrera, the forest outside the cultivation teems with noble animals. Zebra, giraffe, elephant, and rhinoceros are most common. Targamon and guinea fowl were also plentiful. 
The warriors of Mrera are almost all armed with muskets, of which they take great care. They were very importune in their demands for flints, bullets, and powder, which I always made it a point to refuse, lest at any moment a fracas occurring they might use the ammunition thus supplied to my own disadvantage. The men of this village were an idle set, doing little but hunting, gaping, gossiping, and playing like great boys. During the interval of my stay at Mrera, I employed a large portion of my time in mending my shoes, and patching up the great rents in my clothes, which the thorn species, during the late marches, had almost destroyed. Westward, beyond Mrera, was the wilderness, the transit of which, we were warned, would occupy nine days. Hence arose the necessity to purchase a large supply of grain, which, ere attempting the great uninhabited void in our front, was to be ground and sifted. End of chapter 10, part 4